Thank you, David. Good morning. Oh, come on. You guys are the 11 a.m. You've had a chance to sleep in this morning. Let's do that again. Good morning. morning. Yes, that's better. Hey, everyone. My name is Joe Ash Thomas, and uh, truly, what a joy it is to be here. Uh, You know, as David shared, I get to teach about biblical justice at churches all across Canada, and uh, I've heard that your church is different. You see, when I usually speak at churches, I get to teach about justice and its centrality to the good news of Jesus Christ and its centrality to the mission of the church. But I'm told that you already know that stuff. And in many ways, I'm preaching to the choir this morning. So instead of convincing you that justice is biblical or that justice is central, uh, what I'd like to do with you this morning, if that's okay, is uh, spend really our time together talking about two Christian concepts that don't often get thought of together in the world or sometimes even in the church. I want to talk to us about prayer and justice. And more specifically, since the series we're in is called Properly Formed, I want to talk to us about how prayer forms us to go and seek justice in this broken world. In fact, I would argue that if we're praying the Lord's Prayer the way that Jesus always intended for us, we will seek justice. So today we're going to talk about a privilege, a promise, and a priority. If you're taking notes, a privilege, a promise, and a priority. Now I know that you here at Westside Kings have been talking about the cost of privilege over the past few weeks. And the reason why I know this is not because I'm stalking your church online, but uh, it's actually because I I listen to Pastor David's sermons online every week after I listen to my pastor's sermons. And I follow you on social media. And I listen to your midweek podcast. So maybe I guess I am stalking your church a little bit. But privilege is such an interesting thing, isn't it? So I spent my entire childhood in India But believe it or not, I had privilege too. And the reason uh, why I had this privilege is something that I'll go into shortly. But, you know, it's funny because when I tell people that I grew up in Mumbai, uh, they usually think that my childhood looked something like this. Because of the movie Slumdog Millionaire. But my childhood actually looked more like this. And this is actually the neighborhood that my family lived in uh, before we moved to the U.S. So, as you can tell, moving to the U.S. was a bit of a downgrade for us. (laughs) And speaking of Slumdog Millionaire, uh, I actually went to high school with some of the kids from Slumdog Millionaire, and I can promise you that they're not really slumdogs. Most of them weren't anyway. Uh, Most of them were actually kids of rich Bollywood movie producers, but... That's a story for another time. I won't go into that. Um, but, you know, speaking of my privilege, I think I actually had more privilege than most of you sitting in this room. And uh, the folks in the first service were kind enough to point that out to me. Uh, so I'm going to try to do the same with you and embarrass myself a little bit, if that's okay. So quick show of hands around the room, uh, quick exercise. How many of you grew up with a cook, a maid, and a driver? Raise your hands, please. Wow, I saw one person like quickly slip their hand up. Uh, that's okay, no, no shame. 
<laughs> yes. Come on. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, maybe we can save that for the Q&A time later. And your pastor can't can answer that. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I was, uh, I, I grew up so privileged that, uh, yeah, I had all those things in my childhood. Uh, another question for us. How many of us, again, quick show of hands, went to a private school your entire childhood? Yeah, a few more of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last question. Raise your hand if you had to clean your room growing up. A lot of us. Wow, okay. Well, I actually didn't, so that's how privileged I was. But you see, I grew up so privileged that I grew up unaware. Unaware that someone else was always paying for the cost of my privilege. Unaware that India was home to the world's largest population of people in slavery. Unaware that most of the things that I consumed, whether it was the rice in my chicken biryani, the bricks that made up my family's homes, or the clothes that I wore, all of these, all of these things reeked of privilege because someone else was always paying for the cost of my privilege. But now that we've talked about my privilege, let's talk about your privilege, if that's okay. You know, this is my first time in Calgary, and uh, flying in, I couldn't help but notice that you have no water around you. I mean, it's pretty landlocked, right? Can't get more landlocked. But where does your seafood come from then? I mean, surely you've had fish and chips after church on a Sunday afternoon. Surely you've had a tuna sandwich here in Calgary. I'll tell you where it comes from. Thailand is one of the world's largest exporters of seafood. Now, a few years ago, Walmart came to us at IJM because Walmart had heard from their consumers in North America that their shrimp potentially had slave labor in its supply chains. So the Walmart Foundation partnered with IJM to fund an undercover assessment of forced labor slavery in the Thai fishing industry. And here's what we found. Around 82% of workers in the Thai fishing industry are migrant workers from Cambodia or Myanmar. And there are about 200,000 of them. We interviewed around 300 fishermen. And around 75% of them said that they worked for at least 16 hours a day. Most of them get paid way less than the legal minimum wage because the average monthly pay was around $200 a month. 96% of them, 96% of them are made to work overtime, but only 4% of them ever reported receiving overtime pay. 100% of these fishermen, every single fisherman that we talked to who worked on transporting fish from one location to another, had experienced violence on these ships. And 90%, 90% of the fishermen we interviewed were clearly or possibly trafficked. This is where your sushi comes from. This is where your fish and chips come from. Because someone else is paying for the cost of our privilege. 
So what does all this have to do with prayer? What does prayer have to do with our privilege? What does prayer have to do with the injustices of this world? I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to try to answer this question by uh, pointing us to the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 to 13, and we'll also put them up on the screen here. But let me read the Lord's Prayer for us. And since this is the second service, uh, let me actually invite you to stand with me and uh, let's read this and pray this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And while you're standing, let me actually invite you to go a bit deeper into prayer. And if you're okay with it, I'm going to invite you to pray and talk to God in your hearts. And so talk to God and ask him to teach you something new from his word this morning. Let's do that for a moment in our hearts in silence. And now if you would, I'm going to ask that you would pray for me in your hearts, that my words would be helpful to pointing you to Jesus this morning. Let's do that for a moment. Well, Father, we love you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Now let's be real. How many of you have prayed the Lord's Prayer with an individualistic lens? I have. You know, here in the West, we have a tendency to individualize and personalize everything, right? From the gospel to the Lord's Prayer to our pizzas. You know, many of our Western theologians have reduced the good news of Jesus Christ to an individualistic, escapist fantasy so by default, many of us in the church have also reduced the Lord's Prayer and prayer itself to an individualist, escapist fantasy. But what if I were to tell you that the Lord's Prayer was never meant to be an individualist, escapist fantasy? What if I were to tell you that the Lord's Prayer was always meant to form us for participation in the kingdom of God, specifically by seeking justice. You know, my hope this morning is to move us away from the individualistic version of prayer that we've all become accustomed to and to move us towards the authentic vision of prayer that Jesus always intended for us. So we talked about a privilege earlier, the privilege of being unaware. Let's now talk about the promise. Now, before I go deeper into this text, I want to zoom out a bit and I want us to talk about the purpose of prayer. Why did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And of all the frameworks of prayer out there, why did Jesus teach his disciples to pray this particular framework of prayer? I would argue that authentic prayer, Jesus' way, properly forms us 
by moving us away from our privilege and towards God's promise. Let me say that again. Prayer moves us away from our privilege and towards God's promise. Because prayer, as the Lord's Prayer teaches us, is ultimately about asking God to fulfill his promise. Now, what's God's promise? Again, because of our Western individualism, we have constructed our own personalized versions of God's promise. You probably remember singing songs uh, or hearing songs uh, that are Christian that talk about God's promises for me and God's promises for you. But what if I were to tell you that God's promise doesn't really have a lot to do with you and I? What if I were to tell you that God's promise involves us, but it's not actually about just us? It's about all of creation. It always has been. You know, if you look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God's promise is never just about you or me. This is why Jesus has us pray to our Father. Because we're praying to the Father of all creation. He's not just my Father. He's not just your Father. He's also the Father to the 40 million people in slavery right now. And he's also the Father to the 200,000 fishermen in the Gulf of Thailand who put seafood on our tables, most of whom are victims of trafficking. But what's up with the hallowed be your name part, right? What does that tell us about God's heart for justice? Well, the word hallowed is actually the Greek word. In the Greek, it's the word holy. Now, if you want tips on how to pronounce the New Testament Greek, you may not know this, but your pastor, Pastor David, uh, has a PhD in the New Testament Greek. And I'm sure he is dying to teach you how to pronounce these intricate Koine Greek words. So uh, maybe save that for the Q&A too. But a better way of translating hallowed be your name is actually holy is your name. Because God is holy. And do you know what God finds unholy? Injustice. If you don't believe me, just read the Old Testament prophets where God sends prophet after prophet to tell the people of Israel that he would rather they stop their noisy worship music so that they can worship God by seeking justice for their oppressed neighbors. God is so holy that he refuses to hear their prayers because they have their oppressed neighbor's blood on their hands. Because their privilege and their complicity has hindered their own prayers. Brothers and sisters, what injustices are we enabling today? And are they hindering our prayers? It's worth us pausing to do some self-introspection here. But let's go back to talking about God's promise. What is God's promise for all of creation? Let me take us back to creation in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. David uses this word a lot. It's the word tov, which is the Hebrew word for good. But then in Genesis 3, you see a plot twist. You see sin entering the world. 
And sin starts to, starts to destroy God's perfect and good creation. So in Genesis 4, you see one of the first forms of sin pop its head, the sin of injustice, when Cain kills his brother Abel in a very unjust way. But let's go back to Genesis 3, because you see, we like to talk a lot about the curse, but we don't talk enough about the promise that's found in Genesis 3 and the promise of God that's found all throughout the Old Testament and the promise of God that's found all throughout the Bible, really. The promise that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, who would walk the earth as a marginalized, brown, Middle Eastern, colonized, refugee human being. Who would suffer under Pontius Pilate and be executed as a victim of state violence but who would defeat death and defeat sin and be raised to life again. Who will return to judge the living and the dead as we just recited in the Apostles' Creed. And he'll do this by establishing his just kingdom that we see in Revelation, where every tear is wiped away, where all oppression shall cease, and where God's justice is fully restored here on earth as it is in heaven. I just took us through the entire Bible in 30 seconds to make us a point. <laughs> because this is the kingdom that Jesus refers to when he teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ultimate justice. You see, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for justice. It's a prayer that God would fulfill His just promise, not just for you, not just for me, but for all of creation, including the 200,000 fishermen in the Gulf of Thailand who put shrimp cocktails on our table. The purpose of prayer is to ask God to fulfill His promise. The purpose of prayer is to properly form us so that we can go and live the Lord's Prayer, which is by seeking justice. The purpose of prayer is justice. So we talked about a privilege, the privilege of being unaware, and we talked about a promise, the promise of God for all of creation to bring ultimate justice here on earth through His Son, Jesus, and through Jesus' body, us, the church, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's now talk about a priority. Now, I'm not going to do the typical church thing and uh, ask you if prayer is a priority. I'm going to skip to the good part, and I'm going to ask you this. Is prayer enough of a priority to invite God to work in a way that has a cost to us? Or in other words, are we comfortable with our prayers ultimately requiring something of us? Are we comfortable with our prayers costing us something? Because the Lord's prayer is a dangerous prayer. It costs the disciples their lives. It costs them their riches. Or for that matter, is seeking justice a priority for you? 
Now, I'm not asking you if you care about justice. I know you care about justice, and that's why I'm here. But is it a priority? Are you reorienting things in your life? Are you moving things around in your budgets to seek more justice with your businesses, with your corporate budgets, with your home lives, your home budgets? Are we open to praying prayers that cost us something? Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Praying the Lord's Prayer and seeking justice will always cost us something. Always. If you don't believe me, just ask the Old Testament prophets. Just ask John the Baptist. Just ask Jesus. Just ask his 12 disciples. Just ask the early church. Just ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Just ask Rosa Parks. Just ask Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Just ask his successors today who are advocating for the dignity of black and indigenous lives. Does seeking justice cost us something? And if not, what priorities do we need to realign so that our prayers are in line with God's priority? Justice. So we're in the season of Lenten here, and uh, we're all giving up something, right? Or if you're like Tom Brady, you're trying to give up something. <laughs> because, you know, Tom Brady gave up football for Lent. Uh, sorry, I'm a Falcons fan. I think I'm uh, allowing my flesh to dictate the sermon here. But let me jump back to my manuscript. Uh, but maybe after hearing me today, you feel compelled to give up seafood this Lent in solidarity with our enslaved brothers and sisters in the Thai fishing industry. And if that's you, awesome. But I want to challenge us to go a step further, if that's okay. Because you can give up seafood, and you can still consume a thousand other things that have slave labor in their supply chains. So instead of just giving up something like seafood this Lent, what would it look like for us to take the money that we would have spent on seafood and maybe give that money to an organization that's actively fighting these injustices like IJM? Is what you're giving up this Lent actually costing you something? Here's what God says in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6 about fasting. That, that has the wrong uh, Bible reference at the bottom, so don't let that throw you off. Someone from the first service pointed that out to me kindly. But here's what God says about fasting in Isaiah ch chapter 58, verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Verse 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here am I. Do you get what's happening in this text? 
God is telling his people, the people of Israel, to turn their fast into action against oppression. And when they do that, God will listen to their prayers again. Because our participation and our complicity in the injustices of this world can hinder our prayers. And that's why we fast this Lent. That's why we give things up this Lent. Not just to honor God, but to also honor God by honoring people who are made in the image of God. And just so you have an idea of how costly the work of justice really is, it costs $7,500 to fund one month of investigations and law enforcement development in the Thai fishing industry. This includes expenses like traveling to places where Cambodians have been trafficked, training our partners and best practices for investigating, responding to labor trafficking cases. Now, I know that there's someone here thinking, you know what, my family had a great year, my business had a great year, $7,500 for one month of investigations, law enforcement development. We can cover that this Lent. We can do that this Lent. Awesome. Do that this Lent, if that's you. But again, let me challenge us to go a step further, because seeking justice isn't just something that we do once a year. It's not just something we do around Lent. It's a lifelong commitment. It's not just something that we do when there's something that pops up in our world, when an injustice is brought to light. It's something we do for the rest of our lives here on earth. It's something that you do just as much as you do prayer. Because living a lifestyle that asks God to fulfill his promise to all of creation is a lifelong commitment. It's like our CEO Gary Haugen likes to say, the victims of injustice in our world don't need our spasms of passion. They need our long obedience in the same direction, our legs and lungs of endurance. And we need sturdy stores of joy. This is why IJM staff in every office over the world, all over the world pause for 30 minutes of mandatory stillness time and 30 minutes of corporate prayer every single day because it's prayer that sustains us for the work of justice. Jesus taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer so that their prayers would also form them to live the Lord's Prayer by living a life of justice until Jesus returns to fulfill God's promise, which is ultimate justice. Will you join us by making justice a priority? Will you join us by aligning your life your privileges, your prayers with God's promise of justice for all of creation. I hope and I pray that you do. But let me close with a picture of hope, with a picture of what's possible when the people of God prayerfully steward our privilege towards God's promise by prioritizing justice. You know, over the past 25 years of our existence, IJAM with our partners has helped rescue more than 70,000 people from slavery and violence. Just last year, we had our best year. Through partners, we helped rescue around 10,000 people all over the world. Not only that, we also helped secure over 3,200 criminal convictions. Now, this is kind of a big deal because in countries like Bolivia, 
You're statistically more likely to slip in the bathroom and die than ever be convicted in a court of law for abusing a woman or a child. Let that sink in. Our vision by the year 2030 is to protect 500 million people from violence so that they're never enslaved in the first place. And we do that by strengthening their local justice systems. We partner with local authorities to transform entire justice systems because we believe that this is what Jesus will do one day when Jesus returns and makes all things new on earth and wipes away every tear and fixes every broken justice system. Allow me to close by sharing with you the story of transformation in just one country that we're in, the Philippines. You know, when we first started working in the Philippines, brothels and bars in cities like Cebu were crowded with children being trafficked for sex. Our goal was to see a 20% reduction in the prevalence of this crime. We thought that if we could reduce this thing by 20%, we'd be putting a permanent dent in it. So from 2006 to 2010, uh, we had a, a grant, a project that was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And our team in Cebu worked alongside local authorities to rescue and restore survivors of trafficking and to hold the criminals accountable. Again, we wanted to dent this thing by 20%. But when we actually did our measurements and prevalence studies again at the end of this period, we actually saw a 72% drop in children being sold for sex. Praise God. So we launched similar programs in two other cities in the Philippines, in Pampanga and in Manila, to see if we could replicate these results. In Manila, we documented a 75% reduction. And in Pampanga, we saw an 86% reduction in children being trafficked for sex. And these aren't just statistics. These are real people. These are real children, just like your children and our children, with hopes and dreams and prayers. You know, one of these girls who we rescued, I got to meet her a few years ago. Her name is Ruby. And she told us of a time when she went to bed at night in captivity, screaming, praying, God, if you're real, God, if you're out there, get me out of here. And do you know what? The very next day, her prayer was answered when IJM staff showed up with local police to rescue Ruby and five other children from child sex trafficking. This is the justice system transformation that God is waiting to unleash all over the world if we prayerfully steward our privilege with God's promise by making justice a priority. May our prayers continue to move us Westside Kings, may our prayers continue to move us and form us away from our privilege and towards God's priority. Justice on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you. Joash, thank you uh, for everything you've said to us this morning. And uh, when we were prepping for this, I decided to torture you by then, uh, you know, putting you in an open question at <laughs> time. Um, so you didn't speak to uh, the question of whether our parents count. Somebody shouted out when you said, did you grow up with, uh, you know, a maid, a driver, and a housekeeper? And, and somebody shouted, 
you know, do our parents count? And you tried to throw that off to me, and I'm not sure whether to, whether to let you do that. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me quickly answer that, because now I've had more time to process and think through that question. Um, so, yes, it does count as a privilege, absolutely counts as a privilege to have parents that do that for you, because most of the children that we serve don't have that, or they don't have safe home communities where they can thrive. Um, but uh, if you grew up like me, you probably had double the privilege of having great parents that did that in addition to having uh, people that you hired do that. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that, that was such a profound question, and I uh, thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just stunning, you know, to think about how much just having safety is a privilege, just something as basic as, as, as that, just being safe. Yeah. Uh, Josh, I, I want to say this to you. The, the, <laughs> Like, I appreciate what you've come and talked to us about and, and sort of pushed a little bit. But I also, you know, I know that the conversation around justice, you opened actually made reference to that. Sometimes there's a little bit of hesitancy within church life to talk about justice. Uh, you used words like privilege. You talked about systemic problems. Those, those words have become very weighted politically that, that we get almost a little uncomfortable talking about them. If, if I could sort of just play a pastor card for the moment and give you just a little bit more permission that if you were to push us a little harder, right? Yeah. So I feel like, I know what it's like, you come in somewhere as a guest, you want to push hard, but you, you don't want to offend everyone. I mean, like these people are amazing. They hired a Scotsman, right? Um, <laughs> like Scottish people are just by nature offensive, even when we're trying to be like, so, so like if you could push us a little harder, you know, if I get, so just talk to us and just push a little bit more about this question of justice in the church. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I think, you know, unfortunately, um, because we individualize and uh, westernize the good news of Jesus Christ so much, uh, we tend to uh, personalize things like justice, too. So I think I don't have a survey that proves this, but I would say that in my conversations with most Christians, uh, we tend to think of justice as something that's more individual. Uh, we tend to think of justice as giving a cold cup of water to someone uh, in the heat, although you probably don't have to deal with that in Calgary. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, justice, if you understand biblically, uh, is actually systemic in nature because the good news of Jesus Christ is for all of creation, right? It's not just for you. It's not just for me. It's lit literally for all of creation. Um, and so I think it's important to reorient our minds and uh, understand that uh, the justice that the Bible talks about is actually a systemic form of justice. And the Bible actually gives us a mandate to fight systemic injustice. Um, sure, you know, Marxism may align with that, and that's fine. They can do their thing. But, uh, but as the church, this is what we do. This is what we've always uh, sought to do and, uh, you know, unfortunately always fallen short of as well. Yeah. And I, I, I th thank you for... for clarifying that for because I think that's something again like you know I, I'm trying to speak for all of you which is so difficult to do but in my conversations around my five six years at Westside I, I hear this conversation one of the things I love about the Westside community is that yeah we want to be committed to this sort of thing and if the church isn't going to get on board with it I mean so many people at Westside I speak to they're like well I'll just do it myself I'll invest I'll find connections I'll do that which is a wonderful community to be part of and sort of lean together into I I, I wonder if you just you know, I was thinking about, you know, how you're, you're putting your, your talk together. And, and I, I think I know you well enough to know that what you're not trying to do in this is motivate us via guilt. 
because I, which is a really easy thing to do sometimes, but has short-term gain. What does it look like to move beyond listening to your talk today and, and going, oh, man, this makes me feel a little uncomfortable. And, and I know that if I can just not do anything for a couple of days, that uncomfortable feeling will disappear and I'll forget about it and, you, you know, not worry about my sushi. Um, I said to Joe, I should take him for lunch after, after teaching and I was going to take him for sushi. So I was just like booking a different restaurant out of the front while he was talking like, well, that's not going to work. Um, and so, you know, so, so we're going for KD uh, back at my house. And... Uh, <laughs> And if you don't like it, man, it's your fault. <laughs> so, you know, but, but, but help us a little bit, because I, I, if I know you well enough, you're not trying to motivate us about feeling guilty. And the gospel, yeah. Jesus never motivates people that way. Yeah. But what does it look like to move beyond that uncomfort to action? Do you yeah. have anything you'd want to add into that? Yeah. So if you've noticed uh, what I did in a lot of my sermon, I asked you some very uncomfortable questions. Uh, and I try to model Jesus's behavior in that, right? Because Jesus would ask his disciples, uh, really uncomfortable questions uh, to kind of poke holes in like our neatly packed theologies and our ne neatly packed understanding of God. Uh, so, so I hope you understand my heart in, uh, in, in doing that. Uh, my, my hope is not to get you to think like me. My hope is to get you uh, just to think uh, and to, you know, just, uh, just to process these things further, but not just say, stay stuck in analysis paralysis, but to actually move towards action because ultimately, uh, you know, we're called to the Great Commission. We're called uh, to action as Christians. And uh, I talked about Isaiah 58, 6, where uh, God, you know, says, great, do the fasting, do the self-introspection, but don't just stop there. Go and seek justice because your neighbors are actually suffering right now. And there are people out there who need the light of the good news that we've been entrusted with. And, uh, and if, we don't, um, if we don't go and embody this light, that uh, Christ has entrusted us with, then uh, we're not being faithful to it. So I think ultimately, you know, it boils down to the question of, are we being faithful with what God has entrusted to us? You know, because rescued people always rescue people, freed people always free people. And uh, if we're not doing that, if we're not actively living that out, uh, even through our budgets and our life decisions, then, uh, uh, you know, we're, there's an argument to be made that we're not being uh, faithful to the good news that we've been entrusted with. But to answer your uh, overarching theme of the question, um, no, definitely don't do things out of guilt, because if you do things out of guilt, you're not going to do it for the long haul. Uh, you'll do it until the guilt goes away, and then you're fine, right? And that's not the justice that Jesus calls us to seek. Uh, we're called to do this because of our love for God and our love for a fellow man. We're called to do this because of the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor, as yourself, right? And, and that should be our guiding philosophy and motivation to do any kind of justice work in this world. And uh, that's, that's where prayer properly forms us because the Lord's Prayer, as I hope to have pointed out this morning, you know, centers us in, um, in uh, you know, that philosophy of seeking justice because of love. Yeah. So let's just think very practically then about that. So, um, you know, we as an organization at Westside support lots of different partners in different parts of the world that are working for, for justice. And one of the things that inspires me about what you're doing at IJM is that there's, you know, the Bible talks about two types of justice. I, and, you know, there's the sort, of, uh, sort of justice which is distributive, right? What's, how do we live out and model God's rightness? Uh, but, but I also heard in what you were saying today that there's a sense of the retributive justice as well that, that goes on where you, IJM are actually working to stop things happening. 
um, I was recalling, I looked it up actually, so I hope you don't mind me just quoting Please. Martin Luther King to you for a second, but there's a phenomenal quote from Luther King where he says, on one hand, we're called to play the good Samaritan on life's roadside. So that's this, that's this distributive sense, this pain, this brokenness, how do we fix this? He says, but that will only be an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not constantly be beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. And I don't know about you all, but I heard that in, in Joash's talk this morning, that there's this sort of ground level work, but then there's this sort of systemic work, which is how do we stop this at this sort of level? And if we're here, like the other side of the world from some of the stories that you're talking about, what do we, what do we do? Like, how do we support? How do we, how do we help? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, yeah, you know, I feel like historically the church has gotten really good. Uh, and one of the reasons why IJM was founded is because um, our, our CEO was, you know, the United Nations lead investigator in Rwanda right after the Rwandan genocide. What he realized was the exact same thing that Dr. King talked about, which is the church has gotten really good at uh, taking care of immediate needs, right? And, and those are always going to be a thing. Um, but But where has been the faithfulness and, and the presence of the church when it comes to addressing the root cause? Um, you know, many of you here own businesses. I know you already think like this uh, in the corporate world, but uh, if we don't address things at the root cause, um, then, you know, we're just going to keep reacting and responding to uh, humanitarian crises as, as they emerge. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, it's important for us to also be looking at that angle of protection uh, and that's why, you know, IJM, we want to protect 500 million people uh, by 2030 from violence because uh, no one should have to be living in an unsafe community. And uh, as Christians, we believe strongly that uh, the Bible commands us to also think systemically, uh, not just individually. And uh, both are absolutely important. Yeah. So, so Westside... You know, we have missions partners that we work with, yeah. that we're involved with. Uh, somebody sat listening today, and they're inspired by what you're, uh, but what you're saying, and and says, actually, I'd love to kind of you know help out. Like our our belief. I was talking to one of our board members actually uh, just this week, and, and and their sort of heart. I loved was just like was like justice is justice, and it and, and justice through partners with the church, justice through individual connections with IJM. Is it possible? Uh, like, I know that you have some, some other slides, perhaps you're yeah. just hesitant to share. Let me invite you to share them. Yeah. You know, how do, how do, maybe somebody sat here today says, hey, I actually want to help what you're doing, Joash. Can they yeah. do that? Yeah, no, you know, um, this isn't a transactional thing for me. Uh, we're looking at a long-term dialogical relationship between IJM and Westside Kings, right? So this was Really, my hope was this, uh, for this to be an introductory conversation. Uh, and before I even uh, encourage you to you know, give specifically to IJM or get involved specifically with IJM, I just want to thank you for being a part of Westside Kings because uh, you know, I get to teach at churches all across Canada, work with pastors all across the country, and I can tell you for a fact that your church is one of the most justice-minded churches that I'm aware of in this country, and your pastor as one of the most uh, gifted, justice-minded uh, teachers of the Bible. So just by being here, you're in this journey of seeking justice with us. So thank you for that. So, you know, what I would say is uh, I hope you're already tithing here at Westside Kings. But if you're not, and I promise you, Pastor didn't ask me to tell this to you. But <laughs> if you're not, my hope is that you, uh, that you do. And if you are, I hope that you uh, 
prayerfully consider giving more to your church so that your church can do more partnerships uh, like this with organizations like IJM that address systemic injustice. Uh, but let me also give you a quick, uh, just a quick intro to how you can get involved with us specifically. So if you have your phones, feel free to uh, scan this QR code um, and you, know, you can think about it, uh, sign up here or sign up at home tonight after you've had some time to pray about it. But I would love for each of you to become freedom partners with us. Uh, what are freedom partners? Freedom partners give generously to the work of IJM, uh, typically at around $100 a month or more. And uh, you know, because I know so many of you work in the corporate world and are thinking more annualized, like what, this is, what does this actually do to address systemic injustice? Let me give you a sense of what being a freedom partner at IJM at $100 a month can do. So for $100 a month, you can fund annually an entire training module to train partner investigators and prosecutors to collect evidence of trafficking in the Thai fishing industry. Uh, for $250 a month, annually, you can fund investigation support for our skilled partners, including giving them a network of contacts to untangle entire criminal networks in the Thai fishing industry. And I'm sure there's someone here thinking, what does $500 a month do? So for that one person, I'll share this real quick. $500 a month can fund an entire, our entire community engagement efforts, really, in the Gulf of Thailand. Um, so that is basically where we train government uh, leaders, community leaders, church partners, other local partner NGOs to raise awareness, generate community support for rescued survivors, and plug that gap of the system. Um, so yeah, let me, let me encourage you to uh, pray, pray about this and, uh, and you know, turn your prayer into action around this Lent and uh, join us in this journey of seeking justice in an ongoing way for the rest of our lives here on earth. Josh, thank you so much. And I love that, just that last little line there, turn our prayer into action. And that's our heart really, isn't it? That, that it's not just information, but there's something that, that, that when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Let me say one more thing. I Go forgot for it, to man. mention this. Um, so I have a couple of colleagues, one of whom, Phil Calvert, you may know him, actually attends Westside Church. He's one of, one of you. Uh, him, myself, and my other Calgary-based colleague, Robin, will be at the back to talk to anyone who wants to uh, get more engaged, uh, wants to turn their prayer into action, and we'd be happy to process that with you further. Yeah, no, so please go and say hi to, to these. You know what I'd love to do is, can we stand and just pray for Joash and IJM just now? I think that'd be, that'd be beautiful for us just to do in, in a form of, of partnership in gospel work. So, Father God, I thank you for, for Joash, for the teaching that he's brought, for helping us just continue to align your prayer and how you taught us to prayer to pray with your heart. Yeah. And I pray for Joash and the team that he represents. And we're mindful even at the moment, Lord, of, that we represent so many partnerships here at Westside of people yeah. committed to do justice for you. And we just give it all to you, Father God, and say your yeah. kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. And amen. amen. So you. go with God's grace and peace. Say hi to the team at the back. We'll see you on Palm Sunday next week. God bless.